0: Welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. This year the Royals are in the middle of a long rebuilding season, so this week on the podcast I wanted to check in on how some other teams are faring with their rebuild. In this episode I'll be talking to writers about the Miami Marlins, Detroit Tigers, and Chicago White Sox to see if those rebuild movements can teach us anything about how the Royals rebuild might go. Joining me now is Luis Davila of Fish Stripes. Uh, they're a fan site on SB Nation uh, for the Miami Marlins. Uh, and you can join, you can read everything about the Marlins there at fishstripes.com. Luis, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to kind of check in with other teams and uh, that are going through a rebuild like the Royals, just kind of get how their fans are assessing how their rebuild's going because we know there are so many teams that are kind of, for lack of a better word, tanking right now, or at least you know, retooling and rebuilding. To, in hopes of competing in the future. And the, the Marlins, you know, were purchased by an ownership group uh, that included Derek Jeter back in 2017. They've endured a lot of criticism along the way, but it seems pretty clear that they're trying to kind of clear the decks, rebuild. They did trade some kind of popular players like Giancarlo Stanton and Christian Yelich, But we're now in year two of the Jeter ownership uh, tenure. What's kind of the fan assessment, and maybe your assessment as well, of how the process is going so far?
1: Well, I mean, there, there's always going to be some criticism when you have to trade a uh, Giancarlo Stanton who's so far up in the Marlins' uh, hierarchy in terms of performance throughout his career, um, and then obviously when you have a deal like the Christian Yelich deal that hasn't looked very great at the like at least t- to start, you know, there, there's always going to be criticism with that. But um, in general. I think the people who have been really focused on what's going on and checking in at every level you you can see that there's um there there's something coming up the that core uh, of prospects is starting to form and you can already get like a pretty good idea of who's going to be there moving forward.
0: And I think your side and I think some of the more clued in baseball fans I mean I think they there's a lot more buy in because I think there's a recognition of like this is what teams do now to uh to compete that's what the Astros did This is what the Cubs did but in Miami I'm sure among the casual more casual fan I mean they've seen you know good teams just really torn down by this organization before so with the casual fans they're the same kind of understanding of like this is how we have to compete or is there maybe still some maybe lingering bitterness about how some of those past teams were kind of torn apart and maybe some skepticism as what as to what management's doing now
1: yeah of course I mean in, in general there will always be skepticism with it but I feel in South Florida there will be a little extra uh, like you know um, I guess reserved anger towards the the Marlins in that sense because it's it's not something that's just like happening now like it's happened before there's been promises and they've I wouldn't say broken but they they haven't come into fruition you know and the 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 city you could say is still sore from the stadium deal and all that so you know there there there's gonna be people that aren't gonna buy in they they they're gonna have to see the 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 actual the winning they they're gonna have to see that it actually works before they're all in
0: yeah it's kind of like in Kansas City I think uh, David Glass the owner here he was kind of accused of being cheap for many, many years, and, and probably you know really deservedly so, because he did run this team on the cheap for, for many years. And then it wasn't really until the team started really spending when they were in that window of contention and, and won a championship that, that's, that that label, I think, kind of got erased. And even now, I think there are still, I think, sure, some fans that think that ownership is cheap in some respects. So winning does seem to cure all. I think some healthy skepticism, I think, is probably warranted with a lot of these clubs. Uh, not just the Marlins, but you know a lot of these other small market clubs. But uh, but certainly, if it if it ends up in a in a, in a successful formula with winning, uh, I'm sure a lot of fans will forgive the process. Uh, you know, just kind of looking at this current Marlins team and and the current roster they have, who's part of the future at this point? I mean, who we, and what's kind of the timetable the Marlins are looking at as far as when they can compete? I mean, is it are we talking about something in the next three years? Is is it more of a long term, like five year outlook? are there players on this current roster that you think will be part of the next competitive Marlins team? Uh,
1: you know, you, you see guys that you're like, all right, uh, this, this player is definitely a major league baseball player, but obviously you need to see like, all right, is is he truly going to be part of the core? Is he just going to be like an average, you know, bench bat or so? I think the, the one guy you can circle right now and say, this guy's definitely, without a doubt, going to be part of it is Brian Anderson. Third base, he plays uh, right field as well. He He's definitely a guy who's shown he can play defensively in those two positions very well. And at, at the plate, he struggled a bit in, in the beginning of the season, but like he's already rebounded completely and he's the, the best bat in the lineup that they have. So I I think with him, you have a for sure. And the other guys who you could maybe pencil in are, uh, George Alfaro. And he, he's a great catcher, but he has some obvious flaws with his plate discipline and his, his strikeout numbers are, are obviously too high to sustain success. And, um, but he, he, he brings a lot with, with his athleticism. He's very athletic for a catcher. He he's got has great arm, so he, defensively the the issues aren't really that that big there. And at the plate, there's 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 pop. He, he he could be a guy who can hit 30 bombs with his uh with his raw power, but he he needs to make more consistent and quality contact. And then you can go to Garrett Cooper at first base. He can play a little bit left field and right field too, but I think first base for like keeping his legs under him and staying healthy is his spot. Um, I, I think he he could be part of the future, but the, the issue is, is he's an older player already towards his, like he's already in his prime and it's like the beginning of a rebuild. So there's questions if he could even like stay uh, long enough for for the team to actually be competing. But he's having a great season. And he, there's years of control there. So you, you could see him as potentially a guy, but defensively, there's some concerns there. He's not the best defensive first baseman. And they do have a guy they acquired at the deadline this year who could fill in eventually and has just as much power in Lewin Diaz. So I, I would put Cooper as maybe. But honestly, th- those three guys that I mentioned are, are the ones that you could really pencil in. At least on the offensive side, um, in the pitching side, they they were filled with starting pitching to start the year. It, it really looked like they they made a a huge step there, but they've taken a step back, and it's not really a bad thing either. I mean, they they traded out of their starting rotation um, two guys, Zach Gallen, who emerged this year. He has he had a fantastic year in in AAA where everybody seemed to be struggling yet um he comes up to the major leagues he obviously you know uh a few i guess bumps in the road and in, in, in the sense of like you know not going too deep into games but the stuff looked good he turned in two great starts before the trade deadline and he ended up in arizona and the marlins acquired uh shortstop jazz chisholm in return so i mean they, they've been trading from a strength in that sense. They also traded uh, Trevor Richards to the Tampa Bay Rays for outfielder Jesus Sanchez. And, you know, Richards was, did seem like he could be a guy to be part of the future rotation, but he started struggling. They moved him to the bullpen, and I guess it was enough for the Rays, what they saw of him in the, in the bullpen, to, you know, acquire him for, for such a highly touted prospect, along with um, Nick Anderson.
0: And the fact that they were trading away guys like Gallen and Richards, which those are, I think, two of the more interesting deadline deals. I think they didn't get many headlines because these are young players that not a lot of people know about. But the fact that the Marlins are being so aggressive, moving younger players, uh, I guess that to me that maybe says the timetable is a little bit more long-term then then, maybe like the Royals, who I think want a, a, an accelerated timetable, what what are you kind of looking for as far as when this team can kind of start being competitive and and these players will be ready to to be in their prime?
1: Uh, I mean, with, with uh, I, I think this team can start contending. Uh, I would give it like two years so it starts becoming serious. I wouldn't say they're like a playoff team like legit go all the way in 2021 but that's when you should expect guys like jazz chisholm and jesus sanchez to already have gone in some time in the major leagues and you know just get used to it too because it's not just having your top prospects in the major league like these guys have to get used to the grind it's, it's a long season it's it's not the same as the minor leagues so obviously there's that but Um, that most of their prospects should be up around next year. Well, at least the top guys should be up by 2020 or 2021. And then uh, the the plan, everything's pointing at money being spent in free agency by 2021. They, They pretty much all the payroll that they have stuck in their books right now are in Martin Prado, Starling Castro, and Wei and Chen. And that's all all going to be off the books by 2021 so they'll have to sign somebody you know and um i think yeah they can start there um brian anderson will is a likely extension candidate probably even this fall so the the those players will start coming together and then i i think with the starting rotation despite trading guys away it's still looking like they have solid depth there caleb smith has been um the ace this year um, he started off very well, a few bumps in the road with a hip injury and then coming back from that. But um, he's looked great. Um, and then they have Pablo Lopez, who's flashed some really uh, good MLB potential um, between last year and this year. And then uh, their top prospect, Sexto Sanchez, he's having a great season in Jacksonville. I've had a chance to see him a couple times. Um strike thrower, everything you could want from a pitcher, honestly. He throws strikes with all three pitches. He has velocity. His he his secondaries are very good. So he seems like a very good uh, candidate to lead that rotation. They've got Edward Cabrera in the minor leagues as well, having a great breakout season. Um, and then they've got two first-rounders from 2016 and 2017, both left-handed, who could – also slot into the major league rotation as well both having great seasons so they're, they're pitching i mean everybody says it. it's pitching wins wins ball games now you know and it's always what people are looking for what what the playoff contenders are always looking for at the deadline is pitching so the marlins seem to be building an advantage there and they they did a good job of evening the playing field as well and trading richards and and um, Zach Gallen to acquire some left-handed bats that they really needed.
0: You talk about a little bit of the the prospects down that the Marlins have right now. And uh, Baseball America had, had their kind of mid-season organizational rankings where they updated uh, fans on where the farm systems ranked, and they ranked the Marlins eighth. Uh, and they wrote, "If you're looking for the most improved farm system, Miami's a great candidate." It was just two years ago, uh, I guess, when Jeter first bought the team in 2017, that the Marlins were ranked 29th by baseball America so it's obviously been a big, big a huge improvement in this in the state of the farm system but how do you feel about the farm system right now what are some of its strengths what are some of its weaknesses as far as your assessment
1: well I, I personally feel great about it I mean I, I, I see that um, obviously when they acquired the team then there was holes everywhere um, you can't you couldn't really find one position of strength I think the best player that came out of the farm system, with the exception of Brian Anderson before Jeter and team was Harlan Garcia. He was, I mean, he, he's a good relief pitcher, but it's not something you, you want an organization to have up top of their, of their um, farm system uh, rankings. So um, now it it's completely different. I mean, it started with the Elich and Stanton and Ozuna deals and none of those were very popular to start, but I think, some of those players will start like getting people's attentions, you know. And you know, not not everybody's gonna work out. I think I think Brinson, who um, was Brinson acquired in the Yelich deal, it was a pretty good example of that. But you know, you got to keep trying. And I think I think people understand that. Uh, like teams will always prop up these players as like, yeah, he's the guy. But there, there has to be an understanding that it doesn't always work out. But um, now the that they've stockpiled so much you, you can point at in the beginning of the season, you could point at a true strength being the pitching, but there was a real lack of, of hitters. I mean, I think that looked like a huge problem. And in April and may, I I, honestly, it looked like every single player in, in their minor league system position player was struggling. Like um, it, and it got to a point where you're like, okay, this might not be as fast as we thought it would be. None of these guys are taking off, and um, it might be a five-year process, a really long process. But um, they started heating up, and then they acquired uh, J.D. Day in the, um, in the MLB draft this year. And he, he's a left-handed hitter who, who should slot in pretty quickly in the major leagues. He's already started off pretty hot. Um, in high A so and then they acquired three left-handed hitters um, in the, at the deadline I already mentioned Jesus Sanchez um, you have Jazz Chisholm uh, from Arizona and Lewin Diaz from the Minnesota Twins they've all had great starts in the Marlins organization you know there's some flaws in those players but I mean that's why they're in the minor leagues as well you know they there's stuff to figure out but these are guys who could potentially slot into the middle of a lineup uh, with the power and, and, um, and ability to hit that they present.
0: Uh, so you touched upon it a little bit, but you know when this team is ready, if it's in two years or if it's four years whenever, you know there's, there's a little skepticism with the, the Jeter ownership team uh, you know whether or not they had enough capital to, to purchase a club and they, we know they were saddled with some debt. And we know that Marlon's ownership in the past has maybe been a little thrifty. Uh, is there confidence that ownership will spend at that point to enough to to, uh, to make this team a competitor? Uh, we also know that teams are not spending as much on free agents as they used to. So is is that something they've publicly said that, hey, we're, we're going to spend the money? Uh, is it, or is it more likely maybe they just lock up young guys to extensions and kind of try to build with a homegrown team?
1: Well, I mean, I, th- I think with any small market team, uh, the direction will usually be to try to go homegrown, especially when the focus is so much on the farm system. But I- I- I'm honestly one of those people that will, I'm going to wait till I see it. type. I-, I-, I can't imagine this team spending too much in free agency, but at the same time, they've dedicated a lot of resources in their minor league system and it's been a dramatic change too and you know um it's encouraging to see a a team putting in so much money into uh the minor leagues because it's not just like you know signing um guys in the draft and stuff they're they're going over their their draft bonus allotments uh, until like pretty much right where they would be about to lose a, a first round pick and there's taxes that go with that, so it's encouraging to see them spend that money. Um, they're spending money internationally, uh, not just in guys like Victor, Victor Mesa, and his younger brother, but they're also spending money in their facilities there. They're they're making a new academy. Um, so yeah, they have got a lot of resources going in there, and I think they understand that it's something that that will take time for them to to see like the fruits of their labor, but. I, I would imagine if they're spending so many resources there, they should be able to spend them in free agency eventually. But like you said, not many teams are going there anymore, and there's other reasons for that. So it might not be in their best interest to go all in in free agency. I mean, we've seen teams do that and just fall flat. But um, I, I think if they if they had their guy out there, they would spend the money. I think this um, – Last winter, I don't know if you saw the report, but DJ LeMayhew was a guy that the Marlins were pretty much like surprisingly in on until the Yankees signed him. They felt he was an asset that was undervalued, and I think he obviously proved that this year. But I think they will go after a guy that they feel will make their team better, but it, it won't be a situation where they're just signing every top free agent they can find.
0: Yeah, well, people have dismissed the Marlins before, and all they did was go out and win a championship. in, in 2003, with a young core of, of really solid players, and some and some free agent veterans that they brought in that year as well, guys like Iván Rodríguez. So, you know, we've seen it before, and I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me again to see the Marlins do it. And they, you know, they they've they've drawn a lot of criticism, but you know what? They're they're also they're also doing it the way a lot of other teams have done it and have been successful with it. So you can't really fault their formula. They seem, they seem to be kind of going in the right direction. We'll have to see how the Marlins do, but. Luis Davila, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and you can read all about the Marlins on Fish Stripes. And thanks again for being on. Yeah, thank you. We're now talking to Rob Rojacki. He's the editor-in-chief of Bless You Boys, uh, part of the SB Nation network of blogs, and they cover the Detroit Tigers. Rob, thanks, for ju- uh, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be back. Cool. Uh, well, the, the Tigers, I think, are interesting because they're in a very similar position to the Royals. Obviously, they're going through a long season, and they're kind of sitting side-by-side, side, the Royals in the standings. Uh, And I think similar to the Royals, they have a a good crop of young pitchers in the minor leagues that are kind of knocking on the door of the big leagues. Tell us a little bit about the pitching depth the Tigers have in the minor leagues right now.
2: Well, the pitching depth is definitely kind of the best part of their farm system. Uh, A lot of talent down there, Uh, a number of guys that people have, you know, dreamed on and think of that could be, you know, the potential uh, next kind of crop of uh, starting pitchers in the the. Uh, You know, like for the next uh, Tigers contender, Um, you look back at some of the teams that were kind of dominating the the AL Central earlier this decade, and you had the you know the rotation with Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, and then even guys like Anibal Sanchez and Rick Porcello, Uh, and I think both the team and the van see this next crop of players as kind of that same kind of in that same mold. Uh, The I guess the best we'll just kind of start at the top. The best one of the bunch is uh, Casey Mize, the number one pick in last year's draft. Um, he's done nothing to kind of dissuade any concerns about that this year. Um, he's been just excellent. Uh, there was a little bit of a shoulder scare with him early on, or uh, recently, not early on, um, but otherwise he's just absolutely dominated uh, at both levels he's pitched at. Uh, behind him is Matt Manning, another former first round pick that's going to be kind of the theme here is a number of guys who the tigers have taken in the first round uh he's also dominated the full year here at uh double at a erie um it's just been excellent i think he leads the league in strikeouts and has just looked the, the part of a you know a future top of the rotation guy uh some of the other guys down the list uh alex faedo is another one who has really bounced back this year uh, i've been pleasantly surprised with him some people still think he may end up in the bullpen um, just because he really is kind of a fastball slider type pitcher. Um, and then uh, one of the new acquisitions, Joey Wentz, a left-hander who the Tigers got from the Atlanta Braves system at the trade deadline, uh, has put in a couple of really nice uh, starts since joining the, joining the, the club as well. Uh, and then I guess sticking with that double-A rotation, uh, an- another guy that ca- has come up through the pipeline this year is Tarek Skubel. He was a ninth-round pick, actually, uh, in last year's draft, but a guy who was absolutely shot through the the lower part of the minors. I mean, he was just putting up ridiculous strikeout numbers in in A ball, as well as getting up to double A. Uh, I think he already has, like, 60 strikeouts or something like that through five or six starts. Uh, It's just been absolutely incredible to see this guy, and I'm really kind of interested to see how high his ceiling goes.
0: And Wentz, I think most of our listeners know, is a a local product in Kansas City from Shawnee Mission East in Prairie Village, and uh, was rumored to be... Perhaps part of a deal that could have come to the Royals uh, had they moved Ian Kennedy, but uh, that never came to fruition. Instead, the, Royal, the Tigers get him in a deal for Shane Green, uh, as, well, as well as infielder uh, Travis Demerrit from the Atlanta Braves. Uh, part of a couple deals they made, they also traded Nick Castellanos to the Cubs for a pair of minor league pitchers, uh, including Alex Lang, who's also a Kansas City native. Uh, how was your, what was kind of your assessment of the, of the trade deadline? I know there was an article at the Detroit Free Press by Anthony Fenwick that was pretty critical of the front office, saying they were kind of mistiming the market, misreading uh, the market. What's kind of your assessment of the front office, how they're dealing with trades, and and that, and that like a specific report?
2: Um, I actually think they did pretty well at the deadline, to be honest. Um, I know that Shane Green had, you know, just a spectacular first half of the season, where his ERA was flirting with like the 1.0 mark. Um, but his peripheral numbers suggested there was going to be some regression at some point. Uh, it Seems like he's hit that. As soon as he joined the Braves, I want to say he blew like his first couple saves or whatever uh, with with the Braves. Um, and so I think that you know teams are have realized that. Uh, We've gotten past the point where, you know, a shiny ERA and save totals are really going to impress front offices, and so I think that people kind of overestimated what they were going to get for green at the deadline, Uh, and, you know, we were hopeful for, you know, a big shiny prospect, someone in, like, the Drew Waters mold, but I just don't know if that was ever going to happen, and so I'm actually happy with with how things went. Uh, I know there was kind of that report of the Tigers having to, I think uh, Anthony Fennec uh, noted that the Tigers actually had to kind of, like, roll back their ask for, for green, because um, they were originally targeting catcher Alex Jackson, uh, a former first-round pick, um, but then you have you know a conflicting report from one of the guys down in Atlanta, uh, who said that the. Wentz was actually kind of a, a higher ask for the Tigers and once, you know, some other teams had gotten into kind of the Shane Green sweepstakes at the at the last minute uh, before the deadline. And so I'm not really sure what to make of that. Uh, you know, in a vacuum, I think that it's a good return. Uh, Wentz is a guy who I'd already mentioned, uh, one who could potentially be part of that next Tigers rotation. Even if he's, you know, kind of a back end starter, that's a pretty good get for a reliever who has had his had his moments, but isn't really a real kind of lockdown guy. Uh, and then Demerit has actually looked pretty good uh, so far. I don't necessarily know if he's going to be a starter, um, but he came straight up to the big club. Um, has you know played in his first handful of games uh, here. He's looked you know very good at the plate, very patient. Uh, sometimes maybe a little bit to a fault. He does take a lot of a lot of strikes and works into a lot of deep counts and strikes out a lot as a result. But you know has looked like. He belongs, at least, <laughs> which you know hasn't always been the case for this for this Tigers team this year. Uh, and so it's been it's been a nice return. And then you know for Castellanos, I'm I'm happy they got really anyone at all for him. I mean, this is a guy who they were looking to move for the last couple years. Uh, didn't really get any bites during the offseason or at last year's deadline or anything like that. And then to get two you know two prospects, including one who you know Alex Lang, he you know kind of had his warts on him as he was coming out of college, but he was still a first round pick that year. Um, and so I think that's a pretty good return for for a guy like uh, Green. And Lang, I think, is going to be working out of the bullpen, but has already looked pretty good uh, in his first couple outings as well.
0: And, in fact, the Castellanos, I think, it was probably the most notable bat that went at the deadline, not counting, like, Yasiel you know, Puig, who went in a you know different kind of deal. But it just shows you, like, the market probably just wasn't there for hitters, I think, at this deadline. Uh, it's interesting, you talk about Shane Green and and, and his 1.08 or ERA, or whatever it was. You know, I, there's still fans, I think, out there that think, you know, we watch this player and we know he's not as good as his numbers, but we can fool another team into, you know, buying in on him high. And it's like, no, other teams are pretty smart now. They know, they know, they know fit. They know, and then they have, they have really, uh, you know, stat cast data and all sorts of other data that we're not even privy to. So if, if a guy's not that good or is, you know, not as shiny as his numbers indicate, I think they're going to know about it. So it's, it's not as easy to rip another team off. I think it's used to be so, uh, you know, Fans need to probably keep that in mind. Uh, you know, one player that didn't get moved at the deadline in Detroit was Matt Boyd. Uh, I think some people were expecting him to get traded just because he seemed like a pretty valuable asset. He's a guy that um, you know maybe the Tigers could sell high on. Uh, he's having a, uh, was having a pretty nice season, uh, and he has a lot of controllable years left. Uh, I know there's also you know uh, the the, the Fennick article was also a little critical that the Tigers didn't deal uh, Michael Fulmer last year. And of course, now he's you know, under rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, questioning whether or not they missed their opportunity to trade him. Were those both missed opportunities? I know there's always like an art and a science to timing the market for trades and you don't want to just take any trade that comes along. But um, you know there's also a window to deal these guys at their maximum value. So how do you feel about those guys not getting traded?
2: I think the Fulmer one is a little bit more debatable in terms of like, you know, should have they traded him at that point or should have they not? Uh, Fulmer was a guy who was kind of overperforming a little bit. Uh, I know he had that spectacular rookie season, but, you know, his FIP was almost a full run higher than his ERA that year, and he's regressed since then. He had had injury concerns down in the minors, Um, but even then, I... I, I know there were a couple of specific trade offers thrown out there, and I'm not entirely sure how much I buy those. Um, you know, to get Javi, Javier buys, the you know, in the middle of a good year. Uh, plus a couple other players offered straight up for Fulmer, it just seems a little bit too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Alex Bregman, a guy who has hit, you know, ever since he came up to the big leagues. This is what, wasn't a guy who struggled and was going to be, you know, kind of like a bounce back candidate. Like he's hit from day one, uh, and so I just don't know if I entirely buy those rumors. Um, but uh, anyways, getting to getting to Boyd, I don't mind that they held on to him. I know that the ass they were asking for the moon for him but they have him for another you know 3 plus years under team control. Uh and this is a guy who has kind of had his own breakout year this year. People are still wondering if that's going to be legit, especially as he struggled lately, uh, especially a lot with a home run ball. But looking deeper at the numbers, his strikeout rate is way, way up. Uh, His walk rate has held pretty steady, Um, and even as he's struggled in the second half, the strikeout and walk rates have really kind of stayed the same as what they were the first half. And so, if you get to this point next year, I honestly think that if he keeps this up and he keeps pitching the way his he is now. His value is not really going to drop that much because, yeah, you you know take off a year of team control, but now you have not you know this extra 12 months of or however many months of uh, body of work, saying you know this is really the guy who he is. Uh, and so if he keeps that up, I don't necessarily know that is going to miss that miss out on that much. But I do think that if he does that and his value is high next, i would definitely be wise to deal with him just because he's already approaching 30 years old. I think he's you know 28 uh, and change this year. Um, and he just doesn't necessarily fit this with the same timeline as like the rest of the the Tigers' prospects. This isn't a guy who's like 25, 26, and could still feasibly be part of that next Tigers uh, contender. Um, by the time they're ready to you know start making a postseason push, he's already going to be on the downside of his career. And so I think that if they were to get the right offer for him, it would be wise to move him. But at the same time, you don't necessarily want to just sell off on him for nothing. Uh, this is another guy too who, you know, uh, off-field stuff. We don't always you know keep in mind the off-field stuff. But this is a guy who's really represented the organization and the team well a guy who a lot of fans really appreciate uh and i don't think you can just trade that guy for nothing you really got to get something big back for a a player like that you know even if his uh numbers have been a little bit iffy uh you know in previous years but he's uh he's one that i think they really need to get that trade right uh and if they weren't going to get the right return i'm i'm you know not upset that they that they didn't trade him this this july it
0: sounds like Matt Boyd is your version, our version of that is Whit Merrifield, like a guy that's a f- fantastic player, very valuable, you know, but doesn't quite fit the timetable of the rebuild, and Whit Merrifield's 30 years old. Like Boyd, he's a, you know, a great guy off the field, a fan favorite, a guy you really like to root for, so, you, you know, you don't want to just trade him for nothing, and and like Boyd, he also has several controllable years left, and, and so I think the Royals are kind of taking the same tack as, as the Tigers are with Boyd hoping to get that that really big you know give us a couple top 100 prospects because this guy has a lot of controllable years and is a really good player and I wonder you know the, and I, you know I want the Royals to hold off for the best deal too but you know every day that passes is another day that guy gets closer to not you know that's, that's less controllable years he has is there like a point where you say man you know we're we got to move this guy because he's getting less valuable each day and he's getting older and he's getting you know closer to his decline phase. You know, is there, is there a point where that window does pass a little bit? You know, with you look at Fulmer and he had Tommy John surgery, and certainly he could bounce back, but that certainly takes a big blow to his value. You know, I always, that's my big concern with with Merrifield is like, man, you know, I, I want to hold out for a good deal, but there comes a, comes a point where you kind of have to pull the trigger, and, and I don't know, what's, what's kind of your feeling on that with Boyd?
2: i think that the two cases are a little bit different um boyd is a guy who i think they could still hang on to for another couple years uh and even if he does kind of decline a little bit you know he's still a guy who's going to go go out there and give you a bunch of innings Uh, a guy who could really kind of shore up someone's rotation if they if they need a starter um the the yankees this year are kind of a prime example um they've been doing well and they have a huge lead in the division but that's a rotation you know held on held together by paper clips and bubblegum right now to be honest. Uh, now a guy like Merrifield is a little bit different because middle infielders really tend to age very poorly. Uh, and so that's a guy who, you know, could really kind of just wake up one day and not really be the same player. And so I, I definitely get your concern on that front. Um, but in terms of Boyd, I think that, you know, a guy like him, a guy who hasn't always had the premium velocity too. That's another thing that I think kind of factors into it. He's a guy who's really kind of had to learn how to pitch at every level. Uh, and not necessarily just rely on his, you know, mid '90s fastball or anything like that. Um, I think that he's going to age fairly well. Uh, you know, he's maybe not necessarily going to be the best starter or really kind of a peak ace guy at any point, um, but a guy who, you know, health. You know, as long as he stays healthy, I think he's going to still have a few good years left.
0: Yeah. Also, the big difference is, Maryfield's only attractive to teams that need a second baseman I and maybe an, out- an outfielder, but every team could use starting pitching. Like you said, the Yankees, uh-huh. you know, holding their rotation together with uh, duct tape. So uh, you certainly,
2: you know, everyone, the pitch left-handed pitching is always going to be in demand. Yeah. That was one of the things last year that, you know, some fans were hoping that the Tigers would trade Jose Iglesias to the deadline. And I, You know, one of my points that I always made was: look around, look at every single contender. They have a shortstop that is already better than Jose Iglesias. Uh, You know, he kind (laughs) of ran into the wrong era, where you have a bunch of guys like Carlos Correa and you know all these other you know real kind of premium talent shortstops. We're kind of in a golden age uh, for that at this point, Uh, and so he (laughs) he kind of ran into the the wrong. era for that. Um, but no, that was uh, that's another thing that, yeah, with Merrifield, he, he only plays a couple of positions. He's not a guy that you can just, that you're always going to need.
0: Well, speaking of position players, we looking at the Tigers right now. If you look at fan graphs, uh, their entire position players combined are below replacement level, which I didn't even know teams could do. Uh, so there's not a lot to be, I guess, super optimistic about right now. And of course, some of those guys are young. Who on the current roster as part of, you know, among the position players as part of the next competitive Tigers team. Are there, is there anyone that we can really pencil into a future lineup?
2: I mean, I think the only guy you can really look at right now is Jake Rogers, a catcher that they just called up. Uh, I think he's already one of the most valuable players on the roster and he's played something like six or seven games already. Um, but, uh, Rogers has been a, um, A really kind of a defensive wizard uh, all throughout the minor leagues. Uh, At one point, shortly after he was traded to the Tigers, he was named the very best defensive catcher in the minor leagues, Uh, and this shows up in every aspect of his game. Um, You know, he's throwing out, throwing out some runners. Uh, His pitchers aren't really giving him help on some stolen bases, base attempts, Uh, but he picked off, you know, uh, a runner at a towards the end of a game last week to help preserve a win. Uh, His, you know, pop time or. the amount of time it takes him to get the ball out of his glove and throw it is just absolutely stunning. Uh, And even the way he just receives the ball. He's a very very quiet receiver, uh, an excellent pitch framer by all accounts uh, throughout the minor leagues. Uh, And that's a guy that the Tigers just haven't had for a number of years now. So it's going to be very exciting to see how he progresses on that front. Uh, Offensively, he's definitely going to be a work in progress. uh, Really kind of a three-true outcomes guy in the minor leagues who would hit a lot of home runs and draw a lot of walks. But what contact wouldn't always be there uh and really the hope for him is that he just hits somewhere close to league average because i think the defense is going to take care of itself he's not necessarily going to be your middle or the order guy he's a guy who can hit you know sixth, seventh, seventh eighth uh and will hit hopefully 20 home runs in a season for you um but not much else beyond that
0: the farm system it sounds like is gonna have to do the bulk, bulk of the work there uh the, right now the baseball america ranks in number 13 uh making a lot of progress uh what what how do you see the recent drafts? I know they took a high school outfielder, Riley Green, this year. Uh, what's what's kind of your assessment of the the, the last couple of drafts, and what, what areas do they really need to address, and uh, in, in, with the farm system?
2: I think the last last couple of drafts have been pretty good. Uh, one of the areas that was really kind of shallow for a while has been on the position side. Uh, as we mentioned before, there are a lot of young pitchers in the system, a lot of guys that look pretty promising. Um, but then on the position side, they don't have a ton of that. Uh, and they really tried to address that in this last draft. Um, taking a look now, I think that of their top 10 picks, only two of them were pitchers. Uh, you get a little bit further down. And it, it ended up being about an even split. Um, but most of kind of the top end of that draft was position talent. Um, and so I'm hoping, we're hoping that guys like, uh, you know, second round pick Nick Quintana, uh, third Third round pick, Andre Lipsius, has really looked good in the minor leagues, as well as a couple others a little bit further down down the list. Uh, There were a couple picks a little bit later on that a lot of uh, guys that follow the college game really liked. Um, Hopefully those guys can kind of develop quickly. Uh, College bats tend to move pretty quickly through a farm system if they're really kind of worth their salt. But uh, that's definitely kind of the question mark for this rebuild. I think the the pitching is going to be solid, and you can always kind of supplement that a little bit. But on the position side, you mentioned Riley Green, and that's really kind of it. Uh, Daz Cameron, a guy they acquired in the Justin Verlander trade, has really struggled this year. Uh, You know, he's 22 and in Triple A, so that's not you know the worst thing in the world if he does struggle a little bit. Um, but still, not the not the best look. And then, Isaac Paredes, uh, a guy they acquired from the Cubs a few years ago, um, is uh, is another prospect in the system. And he's uh, 20 years old in that AA and that Double A, and had a pretty good season. But he's kind of been quiet for the most part. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see kind of how he does. He was. Acquired in, as a shortstop, uh, but it sounds like because of his body type, he's a little bit of a, a bigger guy, uh, is going to hopefully fill out and add some power, uh, but will eventually have to move off of uh, second. He's probably going to move over to third base. Uh, I don't think he's played second at all this year, um, and so he's going to have to be able to hit enough to really kind of stick at that position. Uh, but other than that, that's really kind of it's very thin at the top of the system in terms of position players, and that's something that they're going to need to continue address both in the drafts as well as in trades and any other way they can kind of help acquire some of that talent.
0: Oh, well, we know one way they could address that is free agency as well. And late owner Mike Illich, I think, it's pretty clear he was willing to spend what it took to bring the Tigers up to you know the top teams. Uh, you know, spending a lot of money, not just on players, you know, internally that you know, locking them up to long-term deals, but going out and getting free agents when they needed to. Uh, you know, since he passed away, that the team is still within the Illich family, but uh, is, is that as is a team, are, are you confident the team is the, the ownership is still going to continue to spend money on this team once they are at a level where they uh, are, are close to being contenders? Is that, is there, or is, sh- should we expect some sort of drop off from, from kind of the days they're kind of up there among the biggest spenders in the league?
2: I mean, there's definitely going to be some sort of drop-off. Uh, Mike Gillis was flirting with the $200 million payroll at points, um, and I just don't see his son really kind of pushing in that hard at any point, maybe for like a year or two if things really look good, but I just don't know if that's going to be the case. Uh, hopefully as they continue to kind of build from the farm system they just naturally won't have to get up that high, because uh, the, the Tigers under Mike Illich, especially in his later years, were just plugging a lot of holes with big money free agents, and while that led to some great baseball, and I don't regret any of those years at all, uh, it you know they're, they're paying for it right now. Uh, And so if you are bringing more players in through the system who are cost controlled, uh, and that's its own kind of uh, Pandora's box. Um, But uh, as you're doing that, that should naturally bring the payroll down. Uh, Now, I'm hoping that when they do start to spend again, we'll still kind of see that payroll rise up to around the 150 million mark or so. Uh, That's a number that I I have always kind of compared them to the Cardinals on this front. Uh, a number that the Cardinals have always kind of seemed to hover around, a number that would still put them at the top of the division uh, compared to the other teams in the AL Central, but maybe not necessarily at the heights that uh, Chris Illich's dad has had this team spend at. So somewhere around there I would be comfortable with. Anything lower than that, if he kind of dips down and you know really kind of keeps them around that $120 million mark, I'd start to be a little bit concerned.
0: If you had to put a, a date on when this team is competitive next, and competitive, let's say, like, you know, in the wild card hunt, at least in the last two weeks of the season, what year are you kind of, would you kind of predict that the Tigers are competitive again? I know timetables are kind of hard and they always adjust, uh, you know, Date Moore, I think kind of seemed to stretch his out, every, you know, as his tenure went along and then eventually he got us there, but uh, certainly not in the original timetable, but what's kind of your thinking as when the Tigers are in, next in contention?
2: I, I'm i not entirely sure. Um, my gut feeling is to say something like 2022 is really kind of when we start to see that. Uh, the Tigers have been absolutely terrible this year, are flirting with their 2003 team as the worst team in American League history. Um, I think they'll get just north of that this year, but 2020 doesn't seem to, you know, isn't really promising to be much better. Uh, they will have more prospects coming up, but, you know, they did lose a couple of their best players this year in Green and Castellanos. Uh, and there will be other guys who, you know, maybe fall off or get better or any number of things can happen with that. Um, getting into 2021, I think, is when you'll see, see this team start to make a little bit of noise. But I kind of compare them to, like, the the Phillies of the last couple of years, a team who has... You know, looked good, especially in the first half, but it's kind of fallen off a little bit late. So, I guess by process elimination, I guess twenty twenty two is kind of when you'd hope to see them really kind of start to make a push uh, towards the wild card. Obviously, a lot can change in between now and then, but this is uh this is a team that had a lot of uh, a-, a lot of issues, a lot of bad contracts on its books um, when they first started this rebuild, and they're you know they're kind of paying for it right now. Twenty nineteen was always going to be the worst part of this rebuild, uh, and it's going to take a little bit of time for that. To them to get back to it so if things do develop well especially the a lot of the position players they drafted this year I think 2022 is when we see them start to start to make a little bit of noise hopefully get back into the into the playoff push
0: well I know it's been a long season in Detroit but you know the old adage is if you're going to be bad in baseball you might as well be really really bad and they have been really really bad which I know probably stinks to cover the team on a daily basis but long term that's obviously the best thing you want you're going to get a you know it looks like you guys are gonna get the number one pick or at least the number two pick for next year. Um, the, you know, as you say, they've been having pretty good drafts the last couple of years. so if they can nail that, they'll be well on their way. so. Uh, it certainly seems like they're they're at least doing the things you need to do to get back on track. We'll have to see how quickly they can get back to uh, where they were. And like I think we've talked about this before, it'd be great if the Royals and Tigers can kind of get back to being uh, you know battling for the Central Division title as they did five years ago. So, mm-hmm. Rob Rob Rojaki, thanks so much for joining us, uh, and, and uh, keep up the great work and bless you, boys.
2: Absolutely, thanks for having me.
3: Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the VergeCast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.
0: Joining me now is Brett Ballantini of Southside Socks. Uh, he's a writer. Uh, hold on a second. Let me start that again. Right. Join, uh, joining me now is Brett Ballantini of Southside Sox. They're the SB Nation's fan site for the Chicago White Sox. Brett, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Max. Well, you know, the, the White Sox are really an interesting uh, team to talk about because they kind of got their rebuild started before the Royals began theirs, starting the offseason before the 2017 season when they traded Chris Sale to the Red Sox and Adam Eaton to the Nationals in the same week. Later that summer, they uh, they traded Jose Quintana, Tommy Connolly and David Robertson and Todd Frazier to the Yankees, and they got that netted them quite a few prospects. Now it's been a couple years since they've kind of undergone that um, that change. What's kind of your assessment on how those deals have worked out, and, and and does it seem like the right move that the White Sox need to make at the time?
4: Well, deals are working out. I think Chris Sale is a you know the most painful for White Sox fans. Of course, we're talking about a guy who's potentially a Hall of Famer, had a terrific Uh, Career with the White Sox pretty much from the get go. Uh, But he was a guy that I think a lot of smart fans would have had the sense that he was not going to be re signing with the White Sox when he hit free agency. I know there's ways to always work around that. But uh, he's a guy who I certainly got the sense was not going to be around for the long term. So certainly for that to jumpstart the rebuild, you know, they got a pretty good offer from Boston. And, you know, then Rick Hahn uh, sort of upped himself, you know, with the trade with Adam Eaton, which has been, a, I think, a pretty big win for the White Sox. And then the Quintana deal with the crosstown rivals where you're pulling Eloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease from that deal. Um, You know, those trades have worked out. Um, And, of course, that's the one thing that really stands, uh, that makes this White Sox rebuild stand apart, is they had those three um, star to superstar pieces to jumpstart the rebuild with. Uh, I don't think that happens that often to be able to get that kind of haul. Uh, with the with the so-called spare parts you have around. You know, Quintana got such a good yield, not because he was necessarily a Cy Young candidate, but because he had such a great, um, a terrific contract for the receiving team, the Cubs. And you could argue that for Chris Sale, still had a couple of years of a very reasonable deal with Boston. So those things only enhanced the value of the assets the White Sox were trying to trade. So when you talk about where the rebuild's at, um, it should be... You know, potentially even further along because they got, you know, quite a jump start. They really didn't have to, as much as they did strip it down, uh, they had such good pieces to deal away that their starting place should have been maybe a couple steps ahead of teams like perhaps the Royals or Tigers.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big advantage they seem to have had is they had the assets to make these big deals, whereas the Royals. Kind of waited until after guys like Eric Hosmer and Lorenzo Cain uh, were traded. Not that those guys I think would have even netted as much as Sale or Eaton, because they you know those guys had such so many controllable years left. And Sale obviously is one of the best pitchers in, in all of baseball. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that seems to give the White Sox kind of a leg up. Can you talk a little bit about the return? I mean, we know Lucas Giolito has kind of emerged as, as uh, you know, one of the better pitchers, better young pitchers in baseball now. Yuan uh, Mankata, before he got hurt, was putting together a pretty solid season. We've seen a little bit of Eloy Jimenez. Uh, you know, is, is the return, I think, enough that they can kind of build around that? Because, um, you know, giving up such great talent, you'd want a great return for those players.
4: Absolutely, the uh, you know, and the return has been good. I think Han has, uh, Rick Han's done a, a really good job with trading those assets. It's a great, it's a you know, it's a great hand to be holding at the poker table for sure. So the expectations are high, and I think he's met them. Johan Moncada, as you said, took a big step forward this season, and really even last year, really got hosed terribly with the calls. I don't think that, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, when you're pushing past 200 strikeouts, you can't really nitpick. But the fact that it was a, a nearly historic season, I think it was a real product of him being a young player who simply wasn't getting the calls, had a batting eye that he just wasn't going to yield on, which, you know, is its own issue to deal with. But even the problems last year with Vancata, I'm not sure that they were really great concerns as much as there was some tear on fire among the fan base and this year you've seen he's turned a corner Um, he's moved from second base to third base which perhaps could have been a factor there as well he's been terrific defensively and as a hitter even from the right side which was definitely his weaker side as a switch hitter uh, he's shown some power Um, you know he's flashing average now Um, really terrific a cornerstone piece for this white Sox team Eloy Jimenez coming over from the cubs uh defensively a black hole in left field, but a guy who's got a great attitude that you'd like to think can at least improve to be say an average player there. And if not, he's of course a guy that you can think about moving to first base, or even if worst case scenario is a DH that bad is going to give you, even just this year, give you a one or two war. Um, So, you know, right off the bat, those are two really nice pieces. Um, You know, Giolito went from being literally the worst starting pitcher in baseball last year to a guy who at least maybe about mid-season was looked at on the short list for Cy Young and certainly going to have a really strong season. Uh, Renato Lopez, another guy who came over in the Eaton deal, which is just looking like a preposterous deal for the White Sox at this point, uh, had a really bad first half. He was pulling his um, Giolito of 2018 and 2019 here, but uh, as of the all-star break, really turned it around. So he's looking like a guy who worst, worst case is going to be a high-leverage uh, reliever, but I think is a guy who could be maybe a, a mid-to-lower rotation um, piece. And really the third, third player they got in the Washington deal. Uh, Dane Dunning did get uh, Tommy John surgery, which is something uh, that's been running through the White Sox this year because Michael Kolpak, the, uh, arguably the centerpiece or co-centerpiece in the Chris Sale trade, uh, also had uh, Tommy John uh, at the end of uh, last season. So they dealt with some injury struggles, but it's not like those guys are written off uh, in any sense. Those guys are still um, top five, top six prospects in the White Sox system. Um, so uh, yeah, early returns of, uh, of the Hall, Han got, I think, you know, is uh, is really good. Um, it's just that's sort of the, the, the lesser part that we have to worry about. It's really all the rest of the team that we have to worry about. In terms of what we've gotten back for these assets, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's all systems go. It's uh, the ability to fill in, anywhere else that I think uh, fans have a right to question Rick Hahn on because uh, he's done a poor job.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the fan base a little bit. I mean, I, I, it does seem like the White Sox have uh, a lot of you know, kind of promising young players. Uh, you kind of see they're, you know, at least on the right path as far as building some some potential stars. Uh, but, but yeah, the rest of the team is largely like anonymous guys that um, a lot of these guys don't really seem like they're part of the future. Uh, And how is the fan base kind of looking at the progress of this rebuild? Are they, uh, you know, being patient and, and, you know, are they seeing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel or is there maybe a little frustration that this team uh, isn't, uh, you know, competing at a faster pace than maybe they anticipated?
4: It might be ironic for a fan base that waited 88 years for a World Series now that it's uh, turning to uh, almost 15 seasons since the last Uh, title to celebrate that we would be getting impatient, but this last year, I mean, certainly it's been a long stretch of losing now, but I mean, even particularly this last year, where this window, you're getting a sense, not just from the fan base, but from what the front office has instructed the fan base on and the cues they're giving, where this window of contention is supposed to be opening, um, it's fair to say there is some building impatience with this team and again it comes from cues from the front office it's not just because we're deciding hey 15 years is too long we're getting ticked off now Um, you know the whole debacle over the uh, offseason with uh, the offers made to Manny Machado that just happened to fall just short of a team like the San Diego Padres which no offense to the Padres I know it's a wonderful place to live and be but it's not Chicago it's not the Chicago White Sox and the fact that some weird like little technical language Uh, in a contract is what prevented that guy from joining the White Sox and sort of announcing to the league, you know, for better or worse, announcing to the league that, um, you know, we're in play. It was a very frustrating situation, given that there was really virtually, again, no offense to the Padres, but no real competition for these players. That's not going to happen again. Even as soon as this next offseason, people are thinking perhaps, you know, we make a massive uh, offer to Garrett Cole, so, you know, it's a no-brainer we're going to get him out. I don't think that's the case at all. There's going to be 10, 15, 20 teams involved in that bidding. This was a real one-time opportunity that the White Sox really blew. But then there's another twist to how this dynamic of of, a fan and and team is working, particularly this season, where the team has taken, at this point, on pace for a a 10-game step forward, a 10-win step forward, which is obviously very substantial, even if last year was a 100-loss season. It's still a substantial move forward. And that is a weird, and this goes back years and years, a weird bletcher with the team. You know, um, there's a lot of fan. there's a lot of attendance, shaming. and there's a lot of real subtle things thrown out there. I mean, very recently, you know, we got some real pushback from the GM in terms of negative blogs and negative Twitter and, and just somehow, like, there's a bunch of ghouls, you know, hanging out right outside the park just waiting for the team to fail, which couldn't be further from the truth, and I'm not sure where he's getting that perception. And and so I think tensions, uh, the real short answer to your question is tensions are definitely rising between fan base and the front office, and you know, an aspect of that is the fact that nothing changed in this rebuild. Usually with a rebuild, in fact, probably 201, teams clean house uh, up top, not just with the rosters, but they clean house in the front office, and that's not the case. Ken Williams is still... On charge. Ownership's obviously still the same. Um, Rick Hahn's been around since pretty much the turn of the century, so nothing's changed. So I think it's fair for the fan base to have some demand to say, all right, if you're keeping everybody together, if you're keeping the gang together and we're supposed to trust that you guys can put this together, show us something. But certainly don't point the finger back at us. And uh, so I guess it's safe to say tensions are rising a bit between fan base and
0: teams. Well, one way to appease the fan base, I guess, is to, to go out and be a little more aggressive in the free agent market. I know the White Sox did kind of miss out on Machado and Harper last winter. Uh, they're near the bottom of the league this year in, in payroll, which is understandable considering they're rebuilding. But, uh, you know, eventually I think fans are going to want to see the team investing in, in, in players again. Do you see them maybe being a little more aggressive this this winter? You know, I, you, I know you said maybe Garrett Cole Maybe not, you know, maybe unattainable with the, with the market he'll get. But we've seen teams kind of shy away from some some of the bigger name free agents, certainly last winter, uh, you know, some big names kind of didn't have much of a market at all. So are the White Sox a team that maybe could kind of fill that void a little bit and be aggressive signing players? I think
4: they're going to try. You know, I'll commend the front office for actually being, I mean, it was, we were pinching ourselves all winter saying, wait a minute, we're going to, we have a chance to get Manny Machado. You know, we're still waiting for the Yankees to swoop in or the Dodgers or just some crazy thing to happen that's going to foil the effort. So it was, you know, as much as Rick Kahn was sort of mocked over the off season where he was talking about how, you know, the White Sox have a right to be at the table. And, you know, we're thinking, geez, he's setting his sights low. But there's some truth to that. They, White Sox, since perhaps, Albert Bell, you know, after the, after the strike in the 90s, have, been, have not been a significant player making a shocking uh, a signing in the offseason for years. So, uh, you know, the idea that the White Sox have the money to spend, purportedly are willing to spend it in, in hopefully ways that won't just fall short and be a 98% good enough offer this coming offseason. I think certainly they're going to be in the mix. I think the problem they're going to run into is they still do have some self-imposed budget limitations. There is going to be greater competition for the, you know, the the relative dearth of talent that's going to be out there, and certainly not necessarily the uh, the so-called generational talents of Harper and Machado. So you're talking about a class that's going to maybe be a tick weaker anyhow, and I don't think it's going to have quite as many names as you'd like it to be, where we as fans could say, you know, even if they get there fourth choice it's still going to work out pretty good and the fourth choice is going to be a real big help to the team if you're getting to the third fourth fifth choice in this coming free agent class you're getting guys that you know maybe you're not certain are going to help so i think that's a little bit of a problem with having whiffed in last off season with machado is that um the chance of them being the catbird seat going into things as, as spring training nears i'm sure everything's going to be delayed again this year spring training nears and guys are making their final decisions it's going to be tough for the White Sox to be in the Capri seat, where it's really their offer or nobody's, which is almost essentially what happened with Machado. So it's going to be a much more challenging uh, free free agent class. So I think Rickon's going to have to get a little bit more clever with maybe turning some of his minor league assets, maybe into you know just a, maybe a star level or even a starter level player. They've got some significant question marks, be it injury or just uh, consistent um, performance in the rotation. That's that really going to have to be attended to and everybody needs arms. So he's got his work cut out for him. Maybe last year was sort of this like um, circling items in the um, Sears uh, catalog for Christmas shopping. Uh, maybe that was his off season last year. We could just sort of like dream a little bit and hope to maybe get lucky. And he almost did uh, this coming season, a year closer to this window of contention where the needs are screaming out you know and when you've got to maybe move from wins perhaps in the 70s level to getting closer to 500 in 2020 uh he's really going to have to perform he's not going to get a chance to sort of just daydream uh through oh boy he's going to hate me saying that daydream through the uh off season uh and really going to have to put together something that turns this team you know much closer to a team that we're talking about and being in the playoff hunt instead of how close are they going to get to 100 losses again this year? That's going to be a big difference from him and, and for him in 2020. And uh, they're really going to have to bring the heat in the off-season because uh, it's going to be a challenge, and they can't afford to whiff this year.
0: Yeah, using those minor league assets would be might, might be interesting. That's how the Royals, I guess, kind of helped make their jump in 2013 to 14 by cashing in some of their prospects for a guy like James Shields, and uh, we know how kind of know how that turned out. But uh, and certainly with the way teams are hoarding prospects, you might actually get you know, a much better player through those means uh, than you would in like in the free agent market, you know, maybe on a shorter deal or a younger player. So that could be an interesting way they go. Let, let's talk a little bit about that farm system uh, and some of the assets they do have. Baseball America ranks it as the number three farm system in baseball, which is pretty, you know, exactly where you want to be if you're a, a, a rebuilding team. They've got some high end talent um, like outfielder Luis Robert. What are some of the other names you're high on and, and what what are kind of the highlights of this farm system?
4: Well, Robert should not be a prospect any longer. He should be starting in center field for the White Sox, but they've got some strange hesitation about that, and whether how much it involves service time, we're not sure, but I think we can make a hunch that it has a fair amount to do with that, even though he's already been paid millions to come over from Cuba. So he should already be up with the White Sox. He seems like a a, a locked in talent that's going to really help the team in 2020, providing he is allowed to be promoted from Charlotte to Chicago in 2020. Uh, Nick Madrigal, the uh, last year's um, first round pick, uh, second baseman, little uh, firecracker of a player, and a guy who I've you know been slightly skeptical of just because you know his his stature, what what seems like perhaps a lower ceiling for a number three, believe. Three, four overall pick, but he's a guy who pretty much he's been promoted. He's jumped up the system. He's at AAA now, and he looks like a guy who's pretty ready to take the step into the majors. He's got a strong glove, doesn't strike out. You're going to see a lot of weird stats with Nick Madrigal that involve him, like never striking out, like old-time White Sox player Nelly Fox. So he's a guy who looks like he's going to, at very least, um, you know, his floor is going to be perhaps just a, a, an average MLB starter, and a guy who perhaps has a little stardom in him. And there's a fair amount of arms. You know, again, they've they've contended with some injury. Dane Dunning, one of the guys who came over for uh, Adam Eaton and Trey Washington, had uh, Tommy John surgery. Michael Kopech, who had made his debut with the White Sox at the end of last year, uh, also did have Tommy John surgery. Those are two arms that we're going to be hoping to see in spring training. Guys that have outside chances, uh, Kopech less so, probably a, a lock for the rotation. But uh, Dunning's a guy who would be in the short list of call-ups for 2020. We've got some arms like uh, Jonathan Stever a little bit further down. He's a 2018 draft choice who's made some real great strides. Bernardo Flores has been a guy who's been around for a while with the White Sox, but uh, ran into a little injury trouble this year, but thankfully not of the Tommy John variety. So he's back pitching. He's a guy who's got outside chance to uh, be a rotation member in 2020. Um, The the read on the White Sox system is that it's uh, high end talent high, so the number three ranking makes sense. A lot of the criticism is that it's not very deep. It's not very good past a uh, top five pick. And I might push back a little bit on that. I think these last couple drafts have really loaded the team up pretty well uh, for maybe a next wave of talent, you know, looking pat, looking to extend the contention window. So I think the White Sox have done a really nice job with some clever picks and maybe some daring picks that are a little bit more out of the box for them in terms of prep players. So I think that's promising. That uh, the classes aren't flat. Uh, I think there's some dynamic talent in the system, and I think guys who are going to be ready probably each season probably a pretty significant name to come up to the team. Which I think is how you want to set it up, right? If not five great players to advance to your team, at least have one or two that you think are going to be able to make a significant dent on the next season. You know, right off the bat, Robert and Madrigal are two guys that are probably going to fit that bill for 2020 and then we'll see going forward but it does seem like they got a few waves of uh of players as you pointed out when the team gets so bad and when you're getting 100 lost seasons this is the this is the position you need to be in and to the white Sox credit they are in that position so let's just see if these guys can a stay healthy and b just continue to Produce at the levels they have been at single A and double A into triple A in the majors, and um, you know so far so good. Robert certainly is is leading the 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 cause there, and he looks like a guy who's just not going to blink once he hits the majors.
0: And it does seem like they've made some improvements. I mean, they lost 100 games last year. This year, they're kind of on pace to win 72, finish 72 and 90 or so, which would be you know a pretty good improvement. We're seeing a lot of the younger players step up. You know, I, I've always said it, said this a lot with the Royals. I don't, I, you know, I don't think the hard part is getting from, you know, sixty wins to eighty wins. I think the hard part is going from eighty to ninety wins. What's it going to take for the White Sox to kind of get to that uh, level of contention? Uh, what, you know, what's what, what's you know, you see the players, what they have in in place right now. What's it going to take to kind of uh, really take them to the the highest level where the Astros and Dodgers are right now?
4: Yeah, I think that number one is luck. I mean, yeah. right now, we're talking about some, some, you know, real legit systems and organizations in, say, L.A. And, and Houston, and, you know, there's always the Yankees. And certainly there are those teams that just got something established where they can pretty much roll out year after year and you feel pretty confident they're going to be in the mix. You know, obviously, it seems like the White Sox and Royals are, are far from that. And you're, and you're right to say to even get into that 500, you know, type of situation where the Sox, you know, even early this season we're on pace to be like you know they were they were pushing for second place they were in the realm of they were 500 you know fairly deep into the season which was a bit of a shocker um you know so you can have those sort of surprise runs but you're right to make a surprise run to, to 90 wins or to 90 plus which is what you need to be secure playoff team is a big leap and this white Sox team has a lot of holes um, as much as there's a foundation there with Jimenez and Moncada and, you know, eventually Robert and you know, a few surprise guys like, say, you know, James McCann maybe surprisingly becomes maybe a, a little bit of a piece for the future from an unexpected direction. Giolito, I mean, if you can count on the fact that this turnaround is permanent, you know, maybe that's a foundation piece, but we're talking about one hand worth of players you can really count on. A bunch of other uh, 4A guys, a bunch of other you know sort of veterans, just sort of brought on to you know keep paddling the boat until you know maybe a, a couple of the younger guys come up. So a lot is predicated on not just what the system can yield, because no system can yield um, 20 major league players in the course of a couple seasons. Uh, it's really going to be predicated on what happens this off season with trades and free agent signings. And the truth is there's just not that much out there just to pay for in free agency to fill this team the way it needs to, to maybe make that step toward 500 in 2020. So there's going to have to be some cleverness with, with, with you know, some luck, of course, but um, White Sox are going to need to get on a good run and they've been on a Shaky grunt for many years now, and you know we're willing to forgive a lot. I mean, this is a fan base that's far more loyal than I think the front office seems to to think is, um, because we're all still here and we all still care and we're all still talking about this team. Uh, and you know the fact that uh, we're where we're at, um, really, this team to Ricky Renneria's credit is playing, you know, in a, in a run differential sense, um, far above what it should be, or at least uh, about mid-season it was. I'm not sure if their pace has caught up with them a little bit now, but he was playing five, six, seven wins above, uh, above pace. I'm not sure how, how he's doing it, um, but whatever smoke and mirrors he's using, this team is appearing in the standings even better than it really is, and I think it's important for the front office to sort of see through the, the, um, the beauty that's at surface level and realize that uh, under the surface, there's a lot of issues uh, uh, roiling below, and they uh, have to do a lot of work uh, in the off season to get this team in shape to maybe make a real run. Uh, you know, geez, at five hundred for twenty twenty, which I think is a, a legitimate high end, but a legitimate uh, a goal for twenty twenty.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. Like there's different ways teams go about rebuilding too. Is like the Royals. When they kind of got good, it was kind of gradual, baby steps every year. I think they set a record for like improving the record every year for like six or seven straight years. But then there's teams like the Astros who went from like 72 wins to 88 wins, and the the Cubs I think went from like 70 wins to 95 wins in one season. And I kind of feel like the White Sox. I mean, yeah, 500 is probably a realistic, uh, uh, you know, benchmark for next year. But when you add young players to the mix, I mean, you don't know exactly what their ceiling is, and and teams can get pretty good in a hurry i mean is there a scenario you can imagine next year where the white Sox are actually pretty darn good next year and competing for the central division title
4: absolutely you know i mean you again the good luck and bad luck you know bad luck strikes twins you know twins maybe they turn out to be one one year wonder uh cleveland doesn't maybe stabilize or, or they they maybe take another step back they they get another you know bout of misfortune um you know so it's, it's certainly the other teams can make that for you but yeah of course the uh, the White Sox had that in them and you know even earlier this season they were making a run at 500 which I, we, we knew wasn't going to sustain but the fact they were even there we were looking at each other like what you know, what's going on there how is this happening and the truth is there was no reason for it to be happening other than the fact that they, I believe they were playing for pretty much the first two three months of the season the weakest um, the weakest schedule uh, in baseball that always helps a lot but... of games
0: against the Royals <laughs>
4: <laughs> sorry yeah. the fact that, uh, that's the truth the fact that the fact they're even there you still gotta win them you can only play who's in front of you and and they did and they did squeak out some wins maybe that they weren't getting uh, in 2018. so absolutely you know you see you know who knows maybe not to put too much on his shoulders but a Luis robert coming up and just uh setting the league on fire like we've, we've seen a lot of the young players around the league uh doing for other teams while ours languish at double and triple-a uh Elo- Eloy jimenez maybe takes a, a nice step forward uh, where he stabilizes defense and then is getting really comfortable with his power bat because you see that guy up to up to the plate, and you don't want to turn the channel. You want to see how hard the cra- how loud the crack of the bat sounds going to be when he takes a swing. Um, there's you know it is absolutely not inconceivable. Then you fill that in perhaps with uh, a couple key free agents, uh, guys who might not even be the biggest names, but are just terrific fits for this team. Just one arm or two. The bullpen is is relatively stable on the south side, so you know you maybe fortify the rotation. With uh, with maybe just even one key signing in addition to uh, a couple guys coming back from injury, they're going to maybe make surprising steps forward. Maybe quicker than you think. Obviously, a lot would have to roll really well. But if your target, if your if your top goal maybe is five hundred, then it's absolutely not crazy if you end up um, outpicking that coverage and getting to you know getting the ninety wins. Heck, anything <laughs> in the AL Central anything, you know, really north of 500 pretty much puts you in the division mix uh, in any normal season uh, these days. So, yeah, it's not inconceivable at all, that the White Sox suddenly can um, walk into 2020 with their shoulders uh, thrown back a little bit for the first time in a while saying, hey, we might uh, make some noise here.
0: It'll be interesting to see how the Central Division does kind of uh, play out in the next couple years because we know, like, the White Sox Royals and Tigers are all rebuilding. White Sox have a little bit of an advantage. Uh, Or at least a a head start. Um, And, you know, we know the Indians uh, still have some young players and are always well run. The Twins still have a core of young players. And, you know, we've seen all these teams rebuilding around baseball. Not all of these rebuilds are going to (laughs) work. So there's going to be some teams that um, it's going to take long, you know, more than four or five seasons. It's going to take a decade for them to to get back to where they want to be. So. We'll have to see how it all shapes up, but um, uh, you know, definitely, if you want to keep up with the White Sox and how their rebuild is going, uh, go over to Southside Sox and you can read Brett and all the great writers over there, and uh, and we'll be we'll be monitoring the Sox. So you know, certainly, we see guys 19 times a year, so we definitely get to see all those young players quite a bit. So, Brett, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Absolutely, Max. We'll uh, see
4: you probably in the snow at the start of the 2020 season, <laughs> and uh, that's been an awful lot of fun uh, playing in February or whenever we're starting next yeah. year.
0: It's always great to play March baseball in Chicago. They don't uh, promote that enough. <laughs> yeah. uh, Brett, thanks so much.
4: All right. Thanks, Max.
0: Well, that will do it for our show this week. We'll be back next week to talk Royals baseball. I want to thank Luis Davila, Rob Rojacki, and Brett Valentini for being on the podcast this week. And thank you, readers and listeners, for visiting our site. We'll Talk to you next time.